please grab one of those Bibles and take that as our gift to you. But we're going to be using the Bible this morning. This is the time uh, in our service where we read God's Word and where we seek to teach and apply God's Word with the help from God's Spirit. So we're going to need our Bibles this morning. As you're seated with your Bible, if you want to open it up to the book of 1 John, this is where we have been for the last month or so. It's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. We're working our way through this great letter. And this morning, I want to read our text for study, pray, and then we'll begin to unpack it a little bit. So 1 John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 11. You can read it with me, and then we'll pray, and then we'll go. Here's what John has to say. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray this morning and ask God to bless his word as we seek to study it and apply it. God, thank you again for the privilege that we have to gather together this morning as your people. Uh, Lord, as we read your word, uh, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would enable us and compel us to surrender our hearts to your word that we would not assume a posture of, of ruling over your word, but that we would assume a posture of surrender to your word, trusting that your word is truth, that it reveals to us who you are and it accurately reveals to us who we are in our great and desperate need for you. We ask that as your spirit works in our hearts and works through your word, that we would be conformed again and again in greater and greater measure to the image and likeness of your son Jesus in whose name we pray and for whose glory, for whose glory, we do all that we do. Amen. Let me read you a quote from the Walker Pierce Percy novel, The Second Awakening. This is what the main character had to say about halfway through that book. I am surrounded by Christians. They are generally speaking a pleasant and agreeable lot not noticeably different from other people, even though they, the Christians of the South, the USA, the Western world, have killed off more people in recent centuries than all other people put together. Yet I cannot be sure that they don't have the truth. But if they do have the truth, why is the case that they are so repellent precisely to the degree that they embrace and then advertise that truth? One might even become a Christian if there were few, if any, Christians around at all. Have you ever lived in the midst of 15 million Southern Baptists? A mystery. If the good news is true, why is one not pleased to hear it? Pleasant and agreeable, not noticeably different from other people, repellent to the degree that the truth is observable in them, and in and of themselves then being an obstacle to the message itself. Now that was a quote from a fictional character in a, in a fictional novel, but art does have a way of imitating life, doesn't it? I mean, isn't that what we often say, that all great art comes from an imitation to some degree of something observable in life? I mean, how many of you have said or are currently thinking thoughts similar to what the character in this novel had to say about Christians or about Christianity. I mean, if that's you, let me just start this morning by saying this. I, I am glad that you are here. 
hopefully in your time here, we will neither embarrass ourselves or repel you. We're glad that you're here. But what Walker Percy in writing this novel and many of you in thinking very similar thoughts to what he expressed are simply responding to something that the Apostle John was pointing out in our text this morning. The command that we have been given as the church by Jesus to love one another in deed and truth and not simply in word or talk. Isn't that what John said in verse 18? Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Because the reality of it is we tend to talk a pretty good game. And we tend to talk a lot. We tend to have a lot of opinions about things and be very boisterous with our words. But John says, brothers and, and sisters, let's not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. And I think what Walker Percy is exposing is that to the degree that we're only talk, to the degree that we're all talk, we actually become repellent to those in whom are watching, to those in whom God is meant to use us in our lives together to appeal his glory and his greatness and his wisdom to. It's a painful critique that Percy makes of the church and of Christians in this book. It's painful because Jesus said that it's not simply our words that are to distinguish us as his people, but it's in particular our love for one another. It's not simply our words, it's not simply our talk that's supposed to distinguish us as his followers, but the distinguishing mark of a follower of Christ, even Jesus said, would be the way that we love one another. It wouldn't simply be words and talk, but it would be deeds done in truth. We've read it before already, but John chapter 13, verse 34, you can just write it down. John's biography is gospel of Jesus. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love, if you have love for one another. I mean, the ultimate goal for the church is to display the glory of God and the character of God to a watching world. Our love for one another, our, our love, our, our love in deed and in truth, not simply our words proclaimed, but our love for one another in God's hands is God's greatest tool for evangelism, for reflecting his glory and his character to a world that desperately needs him. And Walker Percy and the thoughts of your hearts and minds, at least for many of you, are doing a good job of giving us a grade in how well we're actually doing that. The Apostle John in this section is reminding us, look at verse 11, that this command to love, this command to love is the message. It's the message that we have heard from the beginning. It's not new. It's not an added requirement. It's not something new that John's now springing on the church. No, this was what you have heard from the beginning. When Jesus looked at his apostles and said, go into all the world, make disciples in my name of all peoples in all places, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to do all that I commanded. As the apostles were faithful to the task that Jesus gave them, empowered by the Spirit, and they went and they taught the lessons and the truth of the gospel of the person and work of Jesus Christ and all that he had taught them and commanded them and were faithful to that, they taught this. Here it is. Love one another. Jesus commands his disciples to love one another. And I think what makes that quote from the second coming so painful and so difficult at times to actually hear is because it gives us an accurate reflection, really, of how well we're actually doing that. Our, our love for one another is not only meant to be an evangelistic tool in the hands of God, but it's also meant to be a source of assurance in our hearts. Look at verse 14, 1 John chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Look at what John says. 
We know that we have passed out of death and into life. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about being born of God, being born again, the whole process of transformation that occurs in our hearts when we believe on the person and work of Jesus Christ is we are made alive to God. We are made alive. We have a new life. And John's following that same teaching and he says, you know that you have passed out of death and into life. You can know this and have confidence and assurance because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So you can have confidence that you've been born of God if you can see in your heart and then in your life real love for the brothers. Real love for one another, not simply in talk and in word, but in deed and in truth is evidence that you've been born again. It's not the basis for being born again. Be very careful. John has been very careful throughout this letter to remind us this is not the grounds for which we are born again. We don't show love for one another in deed and in truth, and then that merit being born again, then that merit being saved by God. No, that love for one another is to be evidence of a new life to be evidence of transformation. This love for one another is how this new life is then displayed, not created. This is what John is saying. And he does something real particular here, and I wanna point it out to you just before your minds kind of splay out wide. He's narrowing the focus of our love, isn't he? He's saying this is how you can know that you've been born of God, that you have passed from death into life because you love who? Because you love the brothers. It's because there's a love that's displayed in your life towards those who are part of the family of God. When we see this in our life, John's saying, you can have confidence and assurance that you really have been born of God. You really have been born again. Danny Aiken, who's a professor down at Southeastern Seminary, he said this about this text, and I just kind of want to read this to you as a setup for going through it. This statement, verse 14, serves as a stern warning for anyone at any time who finds absence of love in his heart. So if you are a part of the family of God, what Achan is saying and what John is actually saying is that this verse, this idea, this evidence of of new life to be seen in your life, lived out, this is a stern warning. For those in the community of faith, this should be an occasion for soul searching and careful examination. And he quotes the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 to see whether you are in the faith. You can have confidence and assurance that you have been born of God. You have been born again because you love the brothers. And now in the rest of these verses, John is going to give us two contrasting examples of what that looks like. He's going to show us what this love for one another looks like. And he's going to give us a negative example first, and then he's going to give us a positive example. And then he's going to give us a practical application for what that looks like. So last week, if you remember, we picked John's argument apart, put it back together so that we could see all the similar ideas stacked on top of each other. Today, we're actually going to just follow along with John's train of thought. He's going to get a little repetitive, but I want you to see the force of what he's saying. So let's jump in here. First, he's going to give us a negative example of what it means to not love the brothers. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, stop right there, because John just brought in someone else into this argument. He just brought in Cain. So John went all the way back into the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 4. So to understand what John is saying, we've got to go back to Genesis chapter 4 and look at this story of Cain and remind ourselves of what was going on and what John's trying to say. Because when John says this, there's a story that pops up in people's minds. And John isn't going to unpack the story because he's going to assume the church knows what he's saying and where he's going. So if you've got your Bibles, flip them over to Genesis chapter 4. We'll look at this story. We'll, we'll make some sense of it so we can see what John was trying to say. Genesis chapter 4, we'll start in verse 1. John says, don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, what's the story of Cain and his brother? Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, 
And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten the man with the help of the Lord. Verse 2, and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. So stop right there. Here's what we can assume. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but we're going to make an assumption of something. We can assume that Cain and Abel, being raised by Adam and Eve, had been told by their mom and dad the stories of the garden. I mean, we would hope to assume, let me just say it, let me be clear, I'm making an assumption that Adam and Eve passed along to Cain and Abel the story of the garden, the story of what it was like in the garden, the story of their disobedience to God, the story of them believing a lie about God over and against the truth about God, the story of God's punishment of them. The story of how they were set out of the garden and why the garden was guarded by an angel with flaming swords. And we can bet and we should at least assume that they had heard the story of God's promise. That even in the midst of that punishment and that setting out, God had promised them something. That one day he would make all right. And the one who had deceived them and and tempted them would one day be destroyed. We we can assume that Adam and Eve had had passed this along to Cain and Abel. And and in fact, in the second part of verse 3 and in verse 4, we know by the fact that they came to God with a sacrifice that they had at least been taught that the way now to approach God was through sacrifice. So we, we can assume that they had some kind of understanding. For whatever reason, Cain and Abel approached God with differing sacrifices. And God accepted the offering of one and not the other, okay? That's just the basics of what we see in this story right here. This is where most discussion takes place. Why did God accept one, and why did God not accept the other? That's not what John's getting after in referring to Cain. John's not trying to get to the argument and the discussion of why Cain's offering was not accepted, but why Abel's was. He's just trying to get you to understand that they both came to God with a sacrifice, God accepted one, and he didn't accept the other. What John is wanting us to pay attention to and to make note of is how Cain responded to God not accepting his offering, accepting his sacrifice. This is what what John wants us to see. The way Cain responded was not very good. He hung his face, and, and he was angry. Look at verses six and seven. Let's keep reading. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God was not closing the door on Cain. When Cain came with a sacrifice that was not pleasing to the Lord, God didn't close the door on him. God said, listen, Cain, it's not over. Go back and come back again. It's not over for you, Cain. Don't you you understand this? God was again extending grace towards Cain, just as he'd extended grace towards Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel through them by allowing them to now, even in their sin, approach him with a sacrifice. God's extending his grace again to him, saying, it's not over, Cain. Don't you know if you go back and come again, it, it will be okay. But how did Cain respond? Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Despite the grace that God had extended to Cain, Cain's heart was angry. His heart was hard, and he directed that anger towards his brother Abel, and he killed him. And John, in bringing up Cain, in verse 12, says this, why did he murder him? Not why was one accepted and one not, why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. The reason that Cain 
responded to his brother this way was because in his heart and in his anger, he had become jealous of his brother, that he had been accepted before God, that, Cain, that Abel had been accepted before God, and that he hadn't. And that jealousy gave rise to a hate. That jealousy gave rise to hate in his heart, which ultimately then gave birth to murder. And here's what John is trying to say. Here's the the point that John is trying to make in bringing up this story and reminding the church of this story. It's simply this. Unrighteousness cannot stand righteousness. Unrighteousness cannot stand to be around righteousness. Darkness cannot stand to be around light. This is the same thing John had told them in his gospel about Jesus. John chapter three, verse 19. You can just write it down. This is the judgment John wrote that the light has come into the world, talking about Jesus, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Unrighteousness, darkness, as John has defined it throughout this letter, does not like righteousness. It does not like light. People, including yourself, do not like to be exposed. People, including yourself, do not like to be exposed. You know this in your own life. You know when you're in a circumstance and in a situation and you spend time with a friend, a brother or sister in Christ, who in that same circumstance and situation that you are in is responding to it in a way that honors the Lord and your response doesn't. You know, you've been in a situation where you've been around someone, another brother and sister in Christ, and they're doing something or saying something or responding to something in a way that's totally contrary to the way that you're doing, the way that you're responding, and jealousy stirs up in your heart. It's either going to spur you towards greater holiness, a greater expression of righteousness, or in your heart, there's going to grow jealousy. And if not dealt with, that jealousy, that anger will turn to hatred. And if not dealt with, that hatred will give rise to murder. If not physically, at least in your thoughts and then maybe in your words, murder to their character, murder to their reputation, murder to their name. John is saying, do not be like Cain. Don't be like Cain. This is not what love looks like towards the brothers. Love towards one another doesn't look like this. This isn't the soil where jealousy and and hatred grow. Don't, Don't be like Cain. And don't say you aren't like Cain. And don't say you couldn't do what Cain has done. You don't like the light in your sin. And when your unrighteousness and your sin is exposed by proximity to the light, to the life of someone else, don't tell me you're not tempted to murder them in your thoughts. Murder them in your heart. Murder them in your speech the next time you talk with someone else about them. Set someone else up to see them differently than they really are to make you feel better about yourself. Don't tell me there's not a list of things in your mind and in your heart already like that that confirms to you how in other parts of their life you're better than them. How your heart doesn't seek to bring them down in some way. John says this isn't what love looks like in the family of God. Don't be like Cain. Verse 13. He goes on, he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. I wish we just took a whole week on this verse. Honestly, uh, the more I I prayed and studied this week, I really wished we had just stopped and could take a whole week just on this verse. Isn't it true that when we get pushback for our life that we live as God's people, we're often surprised that we actually get pushback? I mean, isn't it true how often we're surprised, to use John's word, that the world actually hates us? Why are we so surprised? I've been thinking about this a lot this week. Why why do we get so surprised that we don't get such a warm welcome from darkness? Here's here's what I've thought of, and I wish we could take a whole week to deal with this. I think we get so surprised when we get pushback for our life that in any way reflects the character and the righteousness of God because we become so addicted to other people's opinion of us. 
We're so desperate for people to like us, so desperate to be accepted by everyone, that any resistance at all for the life of God coming out through us surprises us that people wouldn't like us. Here's what we do, though. We decide to put that light aside and in our own attitudes and in our own behavior, seek in some way to conform to the image of darkness so that we can be liked because we're so addicted to people's opinion of us. This is what happens in the, in the church. And we call it, and this, listen to me, I'm not trying to beat it up because I, I do this often. We call it contextualization. This is what we call it. And we go back to the great heroes of the faith like Hudson Taylor, and we remind ourselves of stories of when he goes to China, he cuts his hair to look like a Chinaman. He wears the same clothes the people were, were wearing when he was there. And we go, look what he did. He did that so people would listen to him. He did that to preach the gospel. We so often look at the pushback we get for the righteousness in our life and go, I don't like that. I'm surprised by that. How can I become more like you so that you like me? We go and we study church history. We read about the great move of God through the Moravian church, the missionary movement. The Moravians, not the current church, are the ones who coined the phrase, every church member a missionary. Every Christian a missionary. It wasn't the 21st century cool church that came up with the idea that we're supposed to live like missionaries. It was the first century. And the Moravians are the ones who then made it a a phrase. And they looked at their life and they said, you know what? You know why I'm a doctor? I'm a doctor so that people in this place can be saved. You know why I'm a lawyer? I'm a lawyer because God put me in this place so that I could reach people with the gospel. You know what? I can be a lawyer in another country. I'm going to go be a lawyer over here for the sake of people hearing about the gospel. We take these stories and we think we need to be more like these people over here so they like us because that's what the church did. That's not what the church did. The church recognized the similarities that they had with others and they were implicit and explicit about that being the means by which they would preach the gospel. We get so surprised when the world pushes back against us when there's any level of righteousness that comes out of our life that we seek to hide it and put it away and try to conform to the image of the world so they will like us more. I don't know why we're so surprised. Better question is, why do we not get more pushback? And why do we get so little pushback in our life? If, if Jesus said that if they hate me, they're going to hate you all the more. And if John says three times in this letter, don't be surprised when the world hates you, when the world doesn't know you, when the world doesn't recognize you. Why do we get surprised when we do get pushback? But better yet, why do we not get more pushback than we do? I said again, because we're so addicted to being accepted and liked by everyone that we've become masters of disguise. We've become masters of disguise and we've created ways to accommodate ourselves. To, to accommodate ourselves to the, to the mood and to the desires and to the likeness and to the, to the image of the world that we've ceased actually being salt and light. That we've shut up all the ways in our life for the light to be seen in and through us. And so the world looks at us and they don't see anything different. That's what Percy was saying. Pleasant, agreeable, not much different than anybody else, but when they talk, all they do is talk. And their lives bear no light to what they're saying to the degree that their light bears no resemblance to what they're saying. They're actually repellent. This is what he was saying. Why why don't we get more pushback than we actually do? It's because we look a whole lot like them. The sad thing is that's what we want. I wish we had a whole week to go on that. Here's what John is saying. Don't, Don't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. When you live righteously in the midst of unrighteousness, that there's pushback against you. But until we actually live righteously, until our life is characterized day in and day out by a walking in the light, as John has said, until that's the reality for us, the pushback will always surprise us. We'll always be surprised by it. And so I got to stop because I won't take a whole week on that one. But Here's his line of thought. Let's just get his line of thought. Followers of Jesus are supposed to love one another. And if so, in our love for one another, we must not love one another like Cain. That's actually not love. Our hearts are not supposed to be the seedbed for jealousy, 
which gives rise to anger and hatred that gives birth in our hearts and in our minds. And God, please, no, through our, our hands, so the lives of others, to murder and destroy them. And if we live righteously, we're going to experience pushback. If we love, as he's called us to love, we're going to experience pushback. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised by it. Jesus said, expect it. And so John goes on to say this. We know, again, confidence. Here's what we read earlier. That we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother. So now he's coming back again. Coming back to Cain. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Remember, John said it multiple times. He's teaching nothing new. I wish we could just get a whiteboard up here and I could take you to all the verses in this section and show you in the Gospels where John is just teaching what Jesus taught. He's not saying anything new here. The people would naturally remember what they had been taught of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Just write it down. You can go back and look at it. Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, 10 commandments. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment, Numbers chapter 30. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus was actually going after the hearts of the church, going after the hearts of the religious people here. And he was going after the anger, the anger that arises in the heart and gives birth to the murder. The the church, the Pharisees, had taken the Ten Commandments and the commandment not to murder. And they had taken the law in Numbers chapter 30 that said that for any act like this, you'll be liable before the council. And they had smashed those two things together and said that this commandment to not murder is only talking about actual premeditated physical murder. And Jesus said, no, no, here's what murder actually is. Here's what it actually means. It starts in your heart. I'm going backwards. What's most dangerous is not simply what comes out of your hands, but what's born in your heart. What's actually underneath the action. Jesus said, no, the danger is, is what's inside of you. Is there no guilt for a person who would like to murder his brother, but it's too weak or cowardly to actually go through it? Is that person actually morally vindicated because of the law? Jesus said no. Real murder occurs first in the heart. They would have known this from the teaching that they had learned about Jesus. Write down Mark chapter 7 verse 20. They would have remembered this. Jesus said it's what comes out of a person that defiles, it's not what comes out of a person that defiles him. It's what comes from within. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder. From within comes murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things, including murder, come from within, and they defile a person. So John is reminding them of what they had already learned from the teachings of Jesus, that a person is guilty before God for heart attitudes and not simply external actions. And so then our hatred, the hatred that is born out of sin in our hearts towards one of the brothers, John says the same as murder. So that he who hates his brother is a murderer. He's saying you can't claim to have a genuine saving faith, to have been born of God, to have new life and the spirit of God residing in you and at work in you and then in your heart and in your mind destroy the life of your brother and sister. You can't destroy them physically and you can't destroy them in your thoughts and in your deeds and in your words and in your intent towards them in reputation or character. It's, it, this doesn't work. You can't have the spirit of God alive and at work in you and yet the spirit of death and hatred at work in you too. One is going to expel the other. John's saying this can't be, and it mustn't be true of the family of God. We can't claim, he's going to say later on in chapter 4, to love a God that we can't see while we hate a brother that we can. 
This just isn't true for the people of God. Now, what John is not saying, I just want to say this really quickly because I don't want you to miss this. What John is not saying is that a person who is guilty of murder in heart or even physically in action cannot taste and enjoy the forgiving grace of God. He's not saying there isn't forgiveness and there isn't grace for those who are murderers. Let's keep it about us and about the church. Maybe none of us have been convicted of murder or manslaughter in our life, but every single one of us knows what it is to hate a brother, to hate a sister in our heart, to murder them in our thoughts and in our intentions, with our words, to make a mess and destroy another person's character or the reputation of another person in the eyes of someone else. We all know what that is like. John is not saying there's not forgiveness for that. But he's saying that if we are alive to God, if we have been born again by the Spirit of God and that Spirit is at work in us, then as quick as we are in our minds and in our hearts to put another brother or sister to death, as quick as that temptation comes and as quick as we give into it, quicker still will be our desire to put that sin to death. Quicker still, because the life of God in us and the spirit of God in us, quicker still will be the desire to put that sin to death, to confess that thing, to agree with God about it. It is murder. Don't call it anything less. It is murder. Quicker still will be our desire to agree with God, to, as John said, walk in the light, to confess that sin before God, to agree with God about that sin, to repent and to turn and to love our brother. Jesus went on in that same teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 23. He's going to tell you what walking in the light looks like in this. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and if you're coming here, if you're coming to the gathered body of the church, and you're ready to offer your gift at the altar, and you realize and you remember that your brother has something against you, or I'll say this, you have something against your brother, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come at all for your gift. Walking in the light also means agreeing with God about your sin, confessing your sin to God, receiving the forgiveness that is yours because of the blood of Christ, but it means in this going to your brother. Going to your brother, confessing to your brother, listen, I have had horrible, murderous thoughts about you in my mind. I have wanted to or I have slandered you and murdered you in the eyes of other people. I need to ask you to forgive me. As quick as that thing rises up in your heart, quicker still for those who are of God will be the desire to put that thing to death. This is what John is saying. This is what he's reminding the church of, what they've already heard. Now he's gonna move on. Here here it comes. It gets good now. Look at verse 16. New life is at work in you. It will be seen in your love for the brothers. Don't let your love look like Cain's. That is not love at all. Rather, let it look like Christ's. By this, John says, we know love. We talk about love all morning. Is there a more universally accepted idea than love? We've been talking about loving one another all morning. And now John's going to define it for us. And if you think about your life, if you think about your friends, if you think about this world, is there a more universally accepted idea than the idea of love? And it's accepted up until the point that someone tries to define it. Love is the end of every philosophical concept, every novel idea that exists in the world today, as long as no one tries to define what love is. And John's actually about to do that. All we need is love, right? Great. Just stop there. I can agree with you that we need love. Just don't don't tell me what that looks like. Don't tell me what it is. Don't tell me what it demands of my life. John's not going to leave us in that. By this, we know love. Here's what we know, what, how we know what love is and what love looks like. That he laid down his life for us. He's talking about Jesus. Write down John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why? Because he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Write down Galatians chapter two, verse 20. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. What did the love of God and the person of Christ look like? He gave up his life. He gave up his life for those in whom there was nothing lovely. Write down Romans chapter five, verses six through 11. While we were still weak, while we were still weak, dead in sin and trespass, while we were not born of God, as John has said, Paul says this, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. But God shows his, what's the word of the day? Picture pages. God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's God's love look like? The person and work of Jesus, it looks like one sacrificing their life for the sake of another. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, not friends, but enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, which is an expression of God's love. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved. More than that, we also rejoice in God through Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Write down this, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. We'll probably get there in a couple weeks right after Easter. In this is love. Here we go. John's going to define it again. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does God's love look like? Beloved, if God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love for one another. Love for one another in the midst of the family of God is evidence of the new life of God at work in us. And the evidence of that love that is the evidence of new life is self-sacrifice. Love for one another is the evidence that the life of God is at work in us. Now, what's the evidence of that love? What does that love look like? It looks like self-sacrifice. Cain, John said, took a life because of jealousy and hatred. Jesus gave his life, John said, because of love. Love gives life. It does not destroy the life of another. Love gives life. It doesn't destroy the life of another. Love does not destroy the character and the reputation and the life of another brother and sister in Christ. Love gives life. Jesus laid his life down for us while we were still sinners, while we were ungodly, while we were still those who were of the devil, while we still delighted in darkness. And he did that willingly, and he did it deliberately, and he did it, John says, out of love. He didn't give his life to pay the price for our sin so that thousands of years later, people could go ooh and ah and have a day on the calendar that celebrated who he was and remembered what he did. He didn't do this for any accolades that we so paltry in so many different ways try to give him for what he did. That's not why he did it. He did it because without him we were dead in sin, without hope. He did this because of love. And love gets involved and love changes things. John says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John isn't saying that in any way, shape, form, or fashion, you or I, through anything that we do for another brother and sister in Christ, can ever atone for the sins of someone else. Jesus' love was absolutely unique in that respect. He died to pay the price for our sins. John is not saying that you ought to lay down your life to pay the price for someone else's sins. You cannot do that. What he's saying is that the life of God at work in us confidence and assurance that the life of God is at work in us is evidenced by a love that we express towards one another that looks like Jesus' love. It's self-sacrificing for the sake of other brothers and sisters in Christ, even to the point of death. John chapter 15, verse 11, write this down. Again, it's nothing new. He's not giving them anything new. Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You and I may not have the opportunity to literally die for someone else. But we do have the opportunity 
and the mandate from God to daily die to ourselves. To daily die to ourselves. You and I do have that opportunity. In fact, the everyday life of a follower of Christ, the everyday life of a Christian, can be described as a life of dying to oneself daily. What is faith if it's not a form of dying? I mean, what is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the promises of God and the riches of the gospel if it's not a form of dying every day to other things that we would choose to be true, to other things that we would actually wish to be true? I mean, what is repentance as if it's not a form of dying to ourselves daily? What is repentance if it's not a form of death that requires us to give up our reputation, to give up our cherished opinion of ourself, to give up our own wants and our own preferences? What is it if it's not a form of death? What is love if it's not a form of death every single day, dying, dying to our own desires, dying to our own schedules, dying to ourselves? for the sake of someone else. The life of a Christian is a life of dying daily. You may not literally die for another person, but every day you are called by God to die to yourself. You have the opportunity to do this every single day in your relationships, in your family. There can be no, let me just tell you this, there can be no deep and abiding intimacy and love in your relationships with one another or with your spouse if you are not dying to yourself every day. You cannot live for yourself and your desires and your preferences and your agenda and your schedule and expect to find the intimacy that God has for us in our relationships with one another. It requires a daily death to ourself. Every day you can die to other people's opinions of you. The very things that keep you from living in the light. The very things that often keep us from loving one another, worrying about what other people will think about us. Being driven being defined by what other people see or what we think they see or what they think they say. Every single day, you have the opportunity to die to that in yourself. And the more we do, the more our days are defined by a daily death to self, the freer we will be to actually lay down our life for the love of someone else. This is what John is trying to remind the church. Jesus glorified God supremely in his death on the cross. You and I have the opportunity to glorify God daily as we die to ourself. This is, this is the life of a follower of Christ. This life overflows then in love, in love towards one another. This love of Christ is available to us at all times and in all places. This is what John has been pointing the church back to this entire time. As our hearts are delighting in the person and work of Jesus, as our thoughts are continually on the person and work of Jesus, the love of God that was shown to us this way, that Jesus laid down his life for us, that while we were still lovers of darkness, satisfied in darkness, he loved us, and he did it by laying down his life for us. As our hearts are centered on the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ, we receive that love of God on a daily basis and that's what gives us the capacity and yet the desire to die to ourselves every day. And as we live in the good news of that gospel every day and are compelled by God's grace to die to ourselves every day, we'll have more and more opportunity and desire and compulsion to love others in the way that we have been loved by Christ. We don't have to look to ourselves to produce this kind of love. You don't have to look to yourself and go, I'm a, this is not the way I generally relate to people. I don't just usually show people this kind of thing. I don't, I don't really sacrifice for people this way. I can't muster this kind of love up. No, you don't have to look to yourself to love like this. You keep your eyes focused on the person and work of Christ. And his love changes you. His life is at work in you. And slowly and steadily in increasing measure, your life becomes defined by a daily dying to self. And as we die to ourself, we are free to love others sacrificially. And John's gonna go on to a practical example, and I don't have time to really unpack it for you. So we'll, we'll read it, we'll talk about what he's saying, and then we'll pray. Verse 17, if anyone, 
or just let the weight of what he says sit on you. If anyone, now he's talking personal, he's not talking groups, he's talking to you specifically. If you, if you have the world's goods, stuff, and you see your brother in need, you see your brother and sister in Christ in need, you've gotten close enough to know them and to see that they're in need, to recognize that they're lacking something that's necessary for life. You see your brother in need, and yet you close your heart. You have a conscious indifference to their plight, a conscious indifference to what they're going through. How does God's love abide in you? How does God's love abide in you? John's just asking this question so that you can examine yourself. C.S. Lewis said, it's easier to be excited about capital H humanity than lowercase h humans, especially those who to us are uninteresting or unattractive. Loving everyone in general is a great excuse for not loving anyone in particular. What John is actually saying and what he's actually warning against is a heart that says, I don't have a problem loving the world. We all love love, right? We're all addicted to love, right? Love will fix everything, right? I don't have a problem loving everyone. I just have a problem loving you. John said, this can't be the heart of the family of God in Christ. This can't be the expression of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. So he says this as a way of encouragement and examination, and that's what we'll let it be. Little children, let us not love in word or talk. All show and no go. Let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you, thank you for your word that is a light unto our hearts, that exposes the darkness the sin that still takes up residence in our soul. I ask that your Holy Spirit would shine in our hearts, show us our need for your grace, show us the extent of your love and mercy that you've shown us in Christ and compel us to walk in the light, to come to agree with you. Lord, if we have anything against a brother or a sister, let us see the measure and the the depth and the breadth and the width of your grace and let it compel us to go to one another and and take down whatever that is that that we've built up between us. Let us be quick to confess to one another that we would walk in the light together, that we would know the joy that is ours in the fellowship with one another and the fellowship with you. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your precious Son, for his glory. Amen.